Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Rurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com, where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country? Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Christy Hugstad. She's the author of Beneath the Surface, a teen's guide to reaching out when you or your friend is in crisis from New World Library. I want to thank Kim Corbin for connecting me with Christy. Christy is a certified grief recovery specialist, speaker, credentialed health educator, and grief and loss facilitator for recovering addicts. She frequently speaks at high schools and is the host of the Grief Girl podcast and talk radio show. She lives in Orange County, California and took some time to talk with me about her experience of losing her husband to suicide in 2012 and how she has embodied a profound resilience that has resulted in giving others hope, information, insight, and strength while facing their adversity and challenges. I'm honored to have Christy on the show to share her journey of resilience. Christy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Christy, I want to welcome you to my show in the sobering awareness that we're recording this episode the day before the seventh anniversary of your husband's death. I just want to say at the beginning, here that I admire your bravery, courage, and commitment to transforming the tragedy you've experienced into a profound movement of mental health awareness and how you honor him with your tireless work to end stigma associated with mental illness and suicide. I just wanted to honor you at the beginning here for how you're impacting the world as we get started. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Sure. If you're willing, will you share some about your husband's death and what you experienced during that time? Absolutely. And you're right. It was exactly seven years ago tomorrow. And my husband was struggling with major depression and it had gone on for several months and all the warning signs and risk factors were there right in front of me. I like to tell people that when somebody has major depression or is experiencing suicidal ideation, the best way to describe it is your loved one becomes somebody that you no longer recognize. 
So he went from being an outgoing business owner, happy, to isolating and being withdrawn. And everything that he talked about was the glass is always half empty. And I knew that he was struggling and that he was depressed, but I guess I really just thought he would never follow through. And, and suicide is something that happens to other people. I didn't really think it would impact my life personally. So for several months, I kept trying to get him help to find that right psychiatrist, psychologist, church counselor, that magic pill that would get Bill back to the man that I married. And I was very fixated on fixing him. So what happened is that about two months before his death, he had a prior attempt and he had taken a bottle of Ambien, which is a sleeping bed. And on the kitchen table, he'd left an empty bottle with a note. And the note said, Christy, I am so sorry. I can't do this anymore. I know I'm a burden to you. You can do so much better with somebody else. And I hate myself. Love, Bill. And I heard the shower running and I thought, what is this? So I wasn't sure if it was a cry for help or if he had actually taken that whole bottle of pills, which contained about 20 Ambien. So I was able to finally talk him into going to a local hospital, Mission Hospital in Laguna Beach, and they put him on a 5150 hold, which is a three-day involuntary suicide watch. And the psychiatrist visited him at the end of that watch, and he said, Bill, what, why did you, were you trying to take your life? Was that your plan? And Bill, who had never really reached out for help and was buying into the stigma mental illness replied, no, I just couldn't sleep. So the doctor released him and he called me to pick him up and drove home. So here I am thinking, I finally, I finally got him help. You know, he, he's at the hospital, he's with professionals. Finally, he's going to get the treatment that he needs and I'm going to have my husband back. So the devastation I was feeling driving him back home was just indescribable, and I thought, here we go, we're starting over again, and I don't know what to do. So again, I tried different doctors, and he didn't seem to be getting any better, and then on October 10th, you know, 2012, he just disappeared, and the coroner came to my house, and his parents were calling me, and Bill had run in front of a Metrolink train in Dana Point near our home and taken his own life. So that's, you know, after that suicide, I thought, you know, this is kind of beyond my comprehension. I don't know what to do with this pain and this darkness. So I gave myself two choices. I thought you can either wallow in self-pity and wonder why this happened to you and what you or your husband did wrong to deserve this, and how could a loving God allow this to happen? Or you can take your pain and you can try to make a difference in other people's lives so that nobody else has to go and experience that dark, dark place that I was at for so long. So that's what I chose to do. At the time of Bill's illness, you've talked about how there were things that you were not aware of when it comes to depression and mental illness at that time. What are some of the things you know now that you'd like to share in order to help families effectively respond to someone in their family who's suffering from depression? Well, first of all, Bill's father told me that Bill had two grandmothers that had had a suicide attempt. And as Bill's father was telling us this, 
he started to cry. And I thought, what does that have to do with anything? But genetics is a big part of it. You know, two grandparents with a with a suicide attempt. So he was genetically predisposed to depression. He also, that prior attempt is a huge risk factor. If you've had a prior attempt, you're four times more likely to try again. So anybody that has a loved one that's made an attempt needs to get that person help immediately because they are four times more likely to try again and be successful. So I didn't realize that that attempt was a huge risk factor. The talk of suicide was to the point where it was almost daily, where everything we did was an opportunity for suicide. We'd go for a walk on the bluff, and he'd say, Christy, climb over the fence with me. Let's jump. Or I'd be in the kitchen cooking something, and he'd walk in, and he'd take the knife and pretend, you know, to stab himself. And it was so frequent that eventually I kind of just numbed out and didn't take it seriously because he was an only child. And, you know, he was quite spoiled and, and somewhat entitled. So in the back of my head, I thought, are you just trying to get attention 24-7? And I didn't take that talk of suicide or that prior attempt seriously. Oh. He also would say, you know, you don't have any idea how difficult it is for me just to get out of bed and take a shower and go to work and train one or two clients. And instead of saying, you know, I don't understand that, but I'm here for you and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna work on this together and I'm here for the long haul. I would say things like, Well, you know what, you don't have to go to work. It's okay, crawl back into bed. So I you know, there were there were risk factors and warning signs waving wildly in front of me this whole time that I was trying to fix him, but I just didn't think that he would actually follow through. So to anybody out there listening, if you have a loved one that's isolating, if you have a teen that's skipping school, their grades are declining, they're not taking care of themselves physically, they're not showering, they don't care what they look like, or they have a change of friends that's not for the better. They don't want to go to school. They're not interested in activities that they once used to enjoy. Don't brush that off. These are red flags that your child or that your loved one is in crisis and needs help. If we could get into talking about your book here, it's called Beneath the Surface, A Teen's Guide to Reaching Out When You or Your Friend is in Crisis, published by New World Library. You've described that at one point in your grieving process, you sought out a book that would help you understand what was happening. And because you could not find that book, you decided to write it. Tell us about your process of creating this book and why it was so important for you to create. Well, I wanted to take the tragedy of my husband's suicide and make it real for other people, not just brush over, you know, oh, I, I understand how you might be feeling or whatever. I am all about prevention. So if we're going to abolish the stigma of mental illness and make change culturally, it has to start with our youth. The conversations have to start with our teens. That's why I thought, okay, then write a book for teens and help us have normal conversations about mental health because the depression and all the issues that we face are a normal part of life and they should not be stigmatized. And the only way to abolish that stigma is to start with our youth. So they grow up thinking, 
thinking that mental health issues are a normal part of life, which is what they are. And also, our teens today, they are experiencing issues that, well, I'm speaking for me, I never had to deal with. You know, they don't have a safe place. They are on technology 24-7. When they get home, that's when the cyberbullying picks up. The self-harm, the anxiety, the peer pressure, the parental pressure, the self-pressure, the substance abuse, self-harm, anxiety, depression, suicide, all of these issues are overwhelming our youth. And we all need to be on the same page, all of us, to help each other and to help our teens recognize warning signs and risk factors and make it okay for anybody that is suffering any issue will reach out for help. Mm. So I wanted to make it very concise and very clear and not beat around the bush. And so in each chapter of Beneath the Surface, I include a story of a real team that I know personally that has been dealing with all these different issues and how they arrived at a real healthy place and provide a message of hope. So instead of just making it more of a textbook, I made it the uh, climate of the book I'm speaking to you. I'm not speaking above you. I want to put this in terms that you understand and relate to. So, you know, an interesting thing, too, is I've had a lot of adults say, hey, I read the book, and I realize that I have these risk factors and warning signs. And in, in the book you write, teens who have gone through these struggles and have found their way back through determination and resilience have inspirational stories. Why was it important for you to include in the book the firsthand accounts of teens who have struggled and also succeeded with mental health? Well, I think it needs to be real. Instead of just a bunch of you know warning signs and risk factors, I think it needs to be put in reality of real teens that have experienced these same things because it's important for our youth to know that they are not alone. That's what is so scary and that's why the teen suicide rates are skyrocketing is because teens feel like it's just them. Everybody else, you know, the way they paint their lives on social media seem really happy and hopeful. And when you're not one of those teens that's getting all these likes and being accepted and popular on social media, you feel like you're really alone. So that's why I thought it's important for me to share stories of real teens so that anybody that's struggling has somebody that they can relate to and realize, hey, you are not alone. We all go through dark times. What kind of feedback are you getting? I'm getting great feedback, and it's not just high-risk groups like that. It's everybody because older generations... Some of us have already bought into that stigma of mental illness. And just like my husband, Bill, he was 54 when he took his life. And there was no way that he was going to reach out for help. He was brought up as a young boy that if you are emotionally vulnerable, that's a sign of weakness. And that's not manly. So he would have never reached out for help. So it's affecting everybody because we all have mental health issues at some point or time in our life. And my whole goal is to normalize that for everybody. So even the high-risk groups like the gay population, LGBTQ community, you know, they're transgender. They are nine times more apt to attempt suicide. So I didn't want to reach just teens or high-risk groups. I want to make it effective 
and informative for all of us. That's great. You are an expert in the grief process. Will you share a little bit about the initial moment of awareness when people experience a traumatic or significant loss? What are some of the most vital things people can do or say in that initial moment of shock? At the moment we learn we've lost someone or something significant in our lives, what needs to be communicated or understood in those moments? By the griever or people that are trying to uh, comfort the griever? If we could hear about both, that'd be great. Well, I think... I'll speak personally. When I was first going through the trauma of my husband's suicide, number one, my mind couldn't keep up with reality. So it took me several days before I could actually process what had happened and before it became real to me. So at that point, I just needed people to be there for me. You know, I had my sisters and my mom each spent a couple nights with me so I didn't have to be alone. So just being there is the most important thing that you can do for the griever when they just find out about a traumatic uh, event. And the things that were not helpful, what you shouldn't say as somebody that's supporting someone grieving, is to minimize their grief. Like, well, you know, Christy... He had mental problems, and it probably would have been a struggle for you for the rest of your life. Or I had somebody say, wow, it's a good thing that your husband died because he may have hurt you or somebody else. You know, so they were minimizing my grief and the value of my relationship with my husband. And that actually made things worse. I I also had people say things like, wow, did you hear what happened to the body? And I thought, why would you share that with me? You know, I mean, my husband ran in front of a train. That is not a place that I need to go emotionally. So there are a lot of people that are just speaking out of curiosity and a lot of people that found out that it was a suicide, and I get this a lot on social media. The most, the biggest question I get is how did he die? You need to be there to be supportive, to listen, and to follow their cue when they speak. Don't try to fix it. That's not going to help. And don't minimize their loss by saying, well, you know, if someone lost a child, well, you have four other children. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that makes things worse. Yeah. So I think people need to realize it's okay to not have the right magic thing to say. And one of the most powerful things I remember, somebody that I hadn't seen for a while, just came up and gave me a big hug, and that was it, and that brought me to tears. So I think just showing up and letting that person know that you care and, you know, that you're there for them. And another thing, too, is rather than say, I'm here for you, call if you need to talk, they're not going to call you. They're so traumatized, and they have so much going on. You call them. You pick up food for the family. Show up. Drop it off. And instead of saying, you know, what can I do? Just figure out what you would want somebody to do and then say, I'm going to bring over food. Would Monday or Tuesday be best for you? So be proactive and don't wait for the griever to reach out to you because speaking from personal experience, that would have never happened. You've talked about how grief is not the enemy. It's a teacher. Will you go into the significance of that? And that's hard to understand initially because you're really questioning, why did this happen? You know, what did I do wrong? Is there a God? You know, you go through this whole array of different why or what if or what did I do? And then eventually you start to realize, hey, you know, the pain is changing me. I am actually growing and learning from my experiences and my darkness. And I am becoming more empathetic. I'm a better listener. 
I know what to do if somebody needs help. I'm not afraid to talk about suicide. I'm not afraid to say, I'm here for you. Let's talk. I'm coming over. So I have grown and learned from the pain. And that is something that is actually a really beautiful thing. If you look at, okay, where would my life have been had this tragedy not have happened? And Bill and I were successful gym owners. And, you know, we had a nice house overlooking the bluff. But we were just existing. We were just kind of keeping up. And we didn't really have any kind of purpose in life. And so through the tragedy of my husband's suicide, I now have found a passion and a purpose. And that is about suicide prevention, which starts with education. So there's beauty in the grief. You just have to be patient with the process and allow it to unfold organically. What other gifts did you experience in that grieving process? Like those things that may have surprised you where the darkness was transformative. I don't sweat the small stuff anymore. You know, little things, financial worries, um, you know, just things that I wouldn't get done business-wise or I would just overwhelm myself. And, you know, I realize now that that's not what life is all about. It doesn't matter anymore. And I am able to go through life now with a new sense of purpose and also a lot more relaxed and with a better sense of humor about things that used to overwhelm me and stress me out. So I think my whole attitude and approach about life in general has changed dramatically. And I've learned what's important. Family is important. Your relationships are important. We don't have that much time here on earth and stop taking it for granted. So I've learned to appreciate and to change my values and to love and spend time with my family and friends and realize that my time left here on earth is a gift and it shouldn't be taken for granted. And I do now appreciate living in the present and appreciate what is going on in the now. And I wasn't like that prior to Bill's death. You mentioned in another interview that some forms of meditation are helpful during the grieving process. Could you explain which ones are helpful? Meditation is different for everybody. I think the meditation that helped me is positive affirmation. I had to kind of rewire my brain to get out of that negative space. So I wrote down a list of things that I'm grateful for and things that were positive that I knew were around the corner. And if I continued to repeat and practice those affirmations, I eventually would start to live them because I was beginning to rewire my thought process. So for me, it's all about staying positive about when those negative thoughts come to stop, back them up, and then say yes, but I'm very grateful for everything that I have and I'm living for today. So I like the positive affirmations and the visualization. You know, I visualize how I see my future and I set forth positive intentions and that's the way that I go forward in life by those types of meditation. 
I see. You write in the book, the road of life is tough. That's an inevitable part of life. But by meeting the challenges we face, we can learn and grow from them, which only make us stronger. People frequently live lives that pursue pleasure and try to avoid pain as much as possible. But how important is it for people to develop a resilience that fearlessly faces the painful or the uncomfortable aspects of living? If we don't face those things, what happens with us? Well, you know, unfortunately, they don't go away. And also, grief and loss is not a one-time deal. Right. I actually thought, after Bill's suicide, okay, well, I've experienced the tsunami of my life. And then, you know, a couple of years later, my brother died, my dad died, you know. So, life is, a part of being human is learning how to handle loss. And I think until it happens to most of us, we don't have any tools for that. And that needs to change. So... You kind of have to get a perspective of what your views about life and the afterlife and everything that's important to you. What are your values? What is your faith? What's your spirituality? And get a handle on that because it's not a matter of if you're going to experience grief and loss. It's about when. And it does happen to everybody and it will happen more than once. So if you're trying to avoid that and just think that you're going to have a life of happiness and pleasure, you're not being realistic. And I, you know, I would say, get a plan, figure out your value system. What's important to you? What do you think about life after this earth? You know, start doing some soul searching now instead of waiting until there's a tragedy that unfolds unexpectedly and you're kind of left floundering. So that's kind of where I was. I was just kind of having a great life. And then out of nowhere, I was blindsided. Hmm. And I think that's a very naive way to live. Christy, I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Will you run through these six quick questions with me? Sure. Who are you thankful for today? I am thankful for my family because when I was in the darkest place of my life, they were there. They showed up for me. They sat with me. They were by my side through everything. They still are. And I am so thankful for them because I don't know if I could have gotten through to where I am today without them. And now that we've covered who you're thankful for today, what are you thankful for today? I'm thankful for all the lessons that life has taught me. I'm thankful for the pain that has taught me lessons and forced me to grow and to learn to be the empathetic, caring person that I am today. How do you fuel the fire within you? The passion that I have within me is fueled by knowing that my work and my message is saving lives and changing people. And that is my passion. And the more feedback I get that what my message is, is working and reaching people, it drives me forward to do more and more each day. What is one thing adversity taught you to value? It taught me to value humanity. It taught me to notice people that were in the shadows, that were sitting by themselves, that were shy, that were not getting attention in life. And just by reaching out to those people that I never used to notice, and to me they didn't exist because I was so wrapped up in my own world, those little gestures of reaching out to people that are kind of on the sidelines in life, I think have made a big difference in their lives. What are you doing today you may have never thought you could? Wow. 
I'm talking about. You know, I didn't think that I could actually write a book. I didn't think I could get it into the schools. I didn't think I could go in and speak to the kids and the teachers and have people say, hey, thank you so much. You know, I felt like I was alone and I feel like I matter and who would care. So everything that I'm doing today to make a difference in suicide education was something that I really wasn't sure that I was capable of. And then what will you do tomorrow that you may have never thought you could? I think tomorrow I'm going to continue on the same path, only on a bigger scale, and trying to touch more people and save more lives. So I want my mission to continue to grow and impact as many people as possible. How can people learn more about you and your amazing work? The best way is to go on my website, which is thegriefgirl.com. And if they want me to speak at their organization or school, there's a speaking form. All of my blogs from the Post Elephant Journal are also there, as well as all my podcasts, all my writings, and information on how to purchase my books. Excellent. Christy, thank you so much for taking time out to speak with Get Up Nation about how we can weather tragedy in our life go through the grief process bravely and be there for one another. Thank you so much for your time and your work. Thank you so much for having me. Sure.